This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. You know what's always in season? Surprising a friend or a loved one with a bouquet from 1-800-Flowers.com. They are perfect for making your friend or loved one's holiday season that much more magical. And right now, 1-800-Flowers.com has amazing offers on bouquets starting at just $29.99. 1-800-Flowers is the only brand that I use to deliver fresh holiday flowers. So to get beautiful seasonal bouquets starting at just $29.99, Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code STUFF. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, enter code STUFF. Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Oh, we have an amazing, awesome, special guest today. Yes, it's pretty exciting. You want to tell us who you are? Hi, I'm Jason Porath. Uh, I do a project uh, blog turned book called Rejected Princesses. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Jason. So uh, what's funny is we've gotten several letters over the last couple of months of people so excited to tell us <laughs> that you exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we've been planning this episode of the show for, for more than a year. I yeah, think. it's been a while. We've been in contact for uh, quite a bit. Quite some time. Yeah. So for the folks who have not heard about it. Tell us what Rejected Princesses is. So it is an exploration of badass women of uh, history and myth and uh, like one or two literary figures uh, that would never make the cut for uh, animated princess, uh, usually because there's a few too many beheadings. There's uh, a lot of beheadings. There's a lot of beheadings. Uh, but I illustrate them in that style anyways and do – uh, as research to write up as I can, um, I'm not a trained historian and I'm not a trained artist, but you know I'm getting better at both. <laughs> and yet you are published in both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as both. Yeah, feels weird. Feels weird, but it came out okay. Nobody's yelled at me too bad yet. Well, and you have this giant book that we were we were just remarking on before we started rolling. That is quite an impressive uh, heft. Of your collection yeah. of lots and lots of my, princesses and my, artwork. My first impression upon like taking out, uh, getting the actual physical copy is like, oh my god, this is like a murder weapon. <laughs> my second impression is, why was that my first impression? <laughs> it is like a legit book. I mean, it's, it's, as Tracy said, it's significant in size. Well, yeah. and I, I think when you have been writing, uh, about things like pirates and murderous Queens and 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 there's good whatnot. people in there too. Good people too, for sure. We're going to talk about some of them in a bit, but I can see how the first thing your mind leaps to might be, yeah. I could knock somebody out with this. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So we're going to talk to Jason uh, about some of your favorite princesses. Heck yeah! And then we are going to talk about uh, a little bit more generally about rejected princesses along the way, also. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So who? are some of your most favorite princesses in this book? Oh, man. Um, so I'm actually going to give y'all a different answer than I give everybody else because <gasps> I think that y'all will appreciate uh, this these these two sisters uh, in a way that I think most people could not. 
uh, Hortense and Marie Mancini. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I, I labeled them the divorce pioneers of the Renaissance. So Marie was uh, in, in very nearly married to Louis XIV, and Hortense was very nearly married to uh, Charles II of England. And both of those fell apart, and they had arranged marriages to, shall we say, suboptimal human beings. <laughs> um, Hortense's was worse. Marie's only tried to poison and kill her. Mm. Um Hortense's locked her up in a convent and then when she continually uh, sort of got uh, rowdy in there, uh, he tried to uh, put increasingly uh, strict restrictions on her and would take her inheritance, which was one of the greatest art collections in all of France at the time, and um, in a pit of a fit of passion, shall we say, uh, her husband went through and knocked off all of the genitalia on all the sculptures and then took a bucket of black paint and painted over all of the, the naked people. He had issues. Wow. Yeah. That pains me from an art history. Pr- like I want to – when I build my time machine, I just want to go back and punch him in the face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm right there with you. Like if you want to, like I'll I'll hold you him down. You can get the machine can... with me. It'll be good. <laughs> um, but yeah, from there the two sort of became this um, uh, talk of the town as they they ran across Europe, fleeing their husbands, and everybody was sort of talking about it because they were all tr- they were trying to get divorces and they were taking lovers, male and female, as they went, uh, and they were talk of the town in multiple uh, countries. Uh, all the while taking them to court, all the while trying to sort of get a divorce, which is nigh impossible at the time, and were some of the only, the first women to write their own memoirs in their own name and clear their name and sort of take control of their own story. They were really phenomenally interesting human beings that I had never heard of uh, who are now some of my favorite people in history. <laughs> Uh, I have heard this whole family of sisters because they were, what, five sisters? Uh, yeah, they were uh, uh, the Mezzarinettes. The, there were three Mancini sisters and then there were two other cousins, I want to believe. Mm-hmm. They were all uh, underneath their uncle, uh, uh, Cardinal Mazarin, I think mm-hmm. was his name. Yeah. So I've heard them described as like the Kardashians of the Renaissance. Yeah. Does that, that seem fit. like an apt comparison? <laughs> that would fit. I mean, I would argue that they had more substance than your average Kardashian. Or, uh-huh. But um, yeah, I think that generally fits in terms of the scope of their fame. Okay. Well, and I think the the part about them taking control of their own stories actually fits with the Kardashians in a way that I think the Kardashians don't get quite enough credit for. That's true. That's true. Good point. Mum's the word. <laughs> Holly and I sometimes don't agree on everything. Uh, I, feel, I feel ways about things. That's, uh, that's true. Uh, do we want to talk about specific princesses now? Yes. So we also have some specific princesses that we want to talk about. So these are, these are folks who, um, Listeners to the podcast have written in to ask us to talk about, and and some of them are ones that we have had not quite enough information to make mm-hmm. a uh, a stuffy mist in history class podcast about them mm-hmm. because it takes a, a lot for a half an hour podcast, but often there is enough information. For Jason to make beautiful artwork <laughs> and the explanation of this person's life. So. Yeah. I mean, and this is sort of, uh, where what y'all do differs a bit from mine. Like I'm, I'm very focused on like, oh, I want to see this movie. Uh huh. And a lot of times the sourcing on the people that I write about is pretty thin. 
Uh, like they're usually, yeah. you know, in many cases, there's only one source. And can you like they're the very questionable as like to how truthy they really were. Sure. Um, and it's oftentimes in languages that I don't speak. So I try to be transparent about that. But um, a good story is a good story. Yeah. Know? So one of our really frequent listener requests, which you and I had a conversation really recently about mm-hmm. how I wanted to do this for a long time. And I I have not been able to. But you have a, a wonderful piece of art and write up on her, and that is uh, Noor Inayat Khan. Mm. Can can you tell me about She's, her? She's, uh, I think, one of the most amazing stories that uh, I've not seen a lot that contradicts this story, and I've I've gone and looked. So Noor Inayat Khan uh, was uh, a honest to god Indian princess. Uh, she, her mother was white, her dad was uh, Indian, and she. Uh, was a Sufi mystic, which is a, a, a sect of uh, Islam that uh, will not let you lie, um, is strictly pacifist. Um, and she was a children's book author. She was a musician. She was kind of a klutzy airhead. She was someone that I identify with very personally. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I want to be your friend. Um, and then World War II broke out and the Nazis invaded Paris. And she went and signed up for the British SOE, the uh, the spy unit, basically, which she was an unlikely candidate for, you know, entering the service. I have to wonder if that whole not being allowed to lie thing would not have made her right. You think that wasn't necessarily the job for her and the pacifism part and also the part where she's not really a great fan of Britain. No, she she I I believe in the interview went in and said, hey, just FYI, once this is all over, I'm going in agitating for India's independence from y'all because I I hate all (laughs) (laughs) y'all. But somehow she she passed the interview. They they really needed uh, people on the ground there. Uh, the average lifespan of a radio operator in occupied Paris was, I believe, six weeks at the time. It was the, and if you go and look at the what her instructors wrote about her and her reviews, they didn't think she was going to last very long. She was basically a sacrificial lamb, as best I could tell. And yet. She's airdropped in and it's on the second or third day that she's there that there's a massive roundup of virtually every uh, radio operator in occupied Paris and she's the only one left I think day two or three. And she's offered an airlift out and she declines and she then goes on to be the sole radio operator in occupied Paris for five months, um, which is far, far longer than mm-hmm. anyone expected her to go. Uh, when she is finally brought down and she, she employs various really clever techniques of like sleeping on the, the rooftops and like dyeing her hair and changing clothes and darting in and out of uh, the subways, like memorizing all sorts of stuff. She eventually is caught, goes down kicking, punching, biting, despite being a lifelong pacifist, and then is, uh, uh, imprisoned and makes several escape attempts. Uh, lying to her captors all the while and then nimbly darting out across uh, rooftops uh, despite being a klutz and having many, many uh, uh, instances during her training that uh, spoke to such uh, was only caught during these escape attempts because uh, there would be air raids at the same time that she had no idea would be happening. And so they battened down the hatches, realized that she'd escaped and found her. Uh, she was eventually reclassified as one of their most dangerous prisoners and uh, subject to incredibly brutal torture, which she never gave up any information. 
a lot of what we know about her final days apparently comes from uh, her having scratched information on the bottom of a uh, cup that was passed around to different prisoners uh, who would hear her in one of the cells but didn't know who who she was. And she would scratch on the bottom of the cup, and that's how they figured out where she was at the very end. Uh, and she died uh, just a week or two before her concentration camp was liberated. And uh, according to the tales, uh, she died screaming liberté. Ah. 30 years old. Her so uh the I she, she's somebody that I have wanted to do a a podcast about for a long time mm-hmm. and the reason that she first got deferred to later on was because of that ending of the story <sighs> we had just had a whole series of just tragic things and I was like I can't have another <laughs> downer right now uh but then the other thing was that the like there's basically one book about yeah. her and you can verify some of the stuff in it but it's it's tricky for us as a podcast to just yeah. rely on one book. Yeah, Shrabani Basu I think is the, mm-hmm. the name of the person who wrote it. Uh and they source about as well as they can mm-hmm. but uh, they're not an impartial uh narrator I would say. Mm-hmm. And there are articles that have been written in response that uh, take issue with some of the, the uh, particulars. I think that there's one that was going around that's extremely long that goes into a lot of detail as to which concentration camp she was in at the end of her life and makes the argument that it's not Dachau. It was, it was a different one. Um, it's hard to tell. I think the, the basic outlines of it are probably true and that perhaps part of it was inflated. A lot of what we know about her final uh, days, I think, comes from uh, – what was her name? Vera Atkins, uh, the, the woman who was uh, running the SOE who went personally and tried to find out what had happened to all the women that she would put in the field. And so you have to take everything that Vera said you know, as verbatim truth, which is also quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. That's I love her story. I do too. I I certainly have a a little bit of a fondness for stories of occupied Paris. Obviously, I think about uh when we had April Callahan on the show and we talked about how many women were the resistors through fashion <laughs> and I, I I have that like sort of fantasy thing where I'm like I wonder if any of them helped her change, like helped her with her oh, her various disguises. Whoa. Yeah. There's all sorts of uh stories to be written here. Yeah. Um I would love to see her pop up in more stuff because she's amazing. Out of everybody I've written about, I think she's the one that I can most personally identify with because, you know, she was a weirdo outcast artist. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Who then was incredibly like brave and heroic. And she, she stepped up. And that's something that I've tried to take to heart whenever I'm, I'm up against like unbelievable odds or just the entire world seems to be going crazy. You know, you realize that. She stepped up. She was a normal human being. So were so many people in this book. Uh, so many people that y'all have covered. So many people in history were ordinary people that just stepped up. Yeah. So before we get to some other amazing women from this book, let's take a moment for a word from some sponsors. So we have been fans here for a while of The Great Courses Plus. We love watching their different video courses, and we've both learned so much from them. And we really, really want you to discover The Great Courses Plus, too. So they are offering our listeners the opportunity to get a full month of free video courses when you sign up using our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. 
The Great Courses Plus has engaging video lectures from award-winning professors, perfect for all of us who love learning. And this free offer lets you get a month free to just watch any of their hundreds of courses from a variety of topics. So historical periods, science, religion, photography, cooking, so many things. When you sign up, you can check out the course that we just watched, which was People and Cultures of the World. I love this. I feel like culture is the best way to really understand history. Like that's always been my in. It's why I love fashion uh, from different eras. So with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many lectures as you want anytime, anywhere from your mobile device, your laptop, or even on your television. Sign up today and get one month free as one of our listeners. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Once again, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Holly, I think the next person that we wanted to ask Jason about is one of your favorites. Yeah, because uh, it, it bumps up against our episode about the Achaemenid Empire. <laughs> so, of course, oh, I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, Tomyris. Yeah. So, uh, Tomyris, according to uh, a number of sources, I think Herodotus is uh, the main one, mm-hmm. uh, was a queen of uh, one of the uh, – is it Scythian or Scythian? I've actually never been sure how to pronounce it. Yet. I, uh, I will not speak with confidence on that. OK. Uh, I'm going to go with Scythian and I apologize to people who know better out there. Or if you just suddenly conjured an image of Darth Maul. Duh. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, she was uh, one of the Scythian tribes, which are the sort of nomadic um, tribes that is a loose confederation that the, the Greeks are just like, yeah, they're over there near the Black Sea somewhere. And uh, they have were the inspiration for a lot of the Amazon legends and uh, have been v- tied to uh, various ethnicities as far as uh, like Mongolia, Proto-Iranian, uh, Cauc- from the Caucasus. Caucasus. Uh, Caucasus. Like, Caucasus. Think, yes. There you go. Uh, I can't talk. It's okay. <laughs> we often can't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, nomadic ste- uh, steppe people that uh, were incredible horse archers um, and she was their queen. And so as the story goes, Cyrus, uh, being on his role, uh, running over different countries and taking them over, comes to her and is like, Hey, so your husband's dead. You wanna, you wanna, eh, eh? And she's like, No. And he's like, Well, <laughs> fine. I'm gonna conquer you then. And she's like, Don't come over here. And he's just like, I'm coming over there. Don't come over here. Coming over. And she, after some some back and forth where he like lays out a banquet and gets everybody drunk and then kills them and like takes her son hostage and the son commits suicide and bad stuff happens. She gets sick of, of him and wages war on him uh, and ends up uh, defeating him in battle and cutting off his head. And the, the big stinger to the whole story, as Herodotus tells it, is that uh, she stuffs his head in a wine sack full of blood and says, bloodthirsty as you are, you have now had your fill of blood. Or I've given you your fill of blood. See, it doesn't surprise me that you thought of your book as a murder weapon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great story. It's, um, there are other accounts of how Cyrus the Great died. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's really hard to tell whether that one is true or not. Um, but Tamiris is nevertheless held up by, you know, various cultures as one of their uh, foremothers. And so uh, she's uh, now the, the playable character in the newest Civilization game. Yeah, uh, I've heard that I haven't played. Yes. Yeah, I haven't either. When I was confirming how to pronounce her name, 
the first thing that came up was like the video about the game and, <laughs> and how like here's our new playable character. Here you go. Yeah. And what's funny about that is that they, they actually built it into the game mechanics uh, reference to her story where she kind of had a truce going with Cyrus at the beginning of it. And then he basically betrayed her and she got bloody revenge on him. So if you betray her, if you come up with an alliance with her in the game and betray her, she will like get really mad at you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I like how you skipped past the part where her culture uh, allegedly, you know, oh, yeah. well, made I mean, people snacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's God knows how many hoary stories about uh, the the uh, misogyny. They uh, would eat their their uh, elders and their the sick and uh, just yeah, the, all sorts of really bizarre dietary habits. And as I was reading through that. I got down the rabbit hole of like whether that was what really happened or whether that was, you know, their enemies. Like the legend that grows after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't either. It's fascinating to think about. Uh, you know, it is, I mean, we've talked so many times on the podcast at various points on the curve about the taboo nature of certainly cannibalism, but also how, you know, when writing about a particularly brutal mm-hmm. enemy, you start to attach really weird behaviors to them that are taboo to kind oh, of absolutely. like shore up your defenses as, yeah. and sometimes, as the better person in the conflict. Yeah. A lot of times to me, the, the brutality is already bad enough. Like you didn't really need to go add in all of that other stuff. But yeah, I mean, that that runs I mean, throughout pretty much every story I've ever covered. Like the, the most outrageous things about, say, Jingam Bande of, of Nadanga, the mother of Angola, uh, that she, you know, conquered a tribe of cannibals and, you know, ate babies and drank blood and murdered her own brother. Like all of that is probably false. Uh, was, you know, come up with by Portuguese. But she was still an enormously fierce woman who really like fought the Portuguese from the jungle for 40 years. Uh it happens in almost every entry that I've written about. This is it's it's a bizarre running feature of, of history that uh, women warlords are ascribed, I think, far more fearsome qualities uh, than perhaps they actually had. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that comes up in your your writing of the Tamira story is your use of paraphrase <laughs> <laughs> where you uh write I, in modern parlance i use some vernacular it's true what is really being communicated which is very very funny <laughs> um and i'm wondering like when do you decide it's time for that versus not i don't know it's whatever makes me laugh i guess <laughs> um like i my my whole goal for the the voice of the project is like if I'm telling you this story at a party, I don't want it to be an ivory tower thing that's really inaccessible. And while I talk, you know, in kind of a ridiculous fashion anyways, I've, some of the reviews of the book are just like it's a little unseemly that, you know, we are supposed to believe that a 34-year-old man uses phrases like besties. I'm like, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a weird dude. I, it's okay if you don't like me, but oh. <laughs> don't say that I'm, I'm doing it as an affectation. That's just how I talk. That's you know, odd criticism. People have had the same – not so much anymore, but when Holly and I first came on the show, there were people who like insisted that we were affecting the way that we spoke to, because we were young and we were in both our like, 40s. <laughs> I was already, my, yeah, I was, yeah. I was 39 at that point. Yeah. So I think I was 39. Yeah, there's a lot together. of tone Just policing on the speak. internet. Oh, so yes. much. 
Oh, yes. Next, we get to one that Tracy picked, and I know she's excited about. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Saida Alhura, for yes. so many reasons. Uh, number one, there's piracy involved. Yeah. And another amazing woman. So uh, the story of Sayed Al-Hura is also very thinly sourced. We don't actually know her real name. Sayed Al-Hura is a uh, title that uh, means uh, like honored lady or something. I forget exactly how it uh, translates out. Uh, but the story as it goes is that um, in come the Spanish Inquisition time, she uh, was living in um, Al-Andalus, the uh, Moorish region of Spain, and was kicked out by Ferdinand and Isabella's Inquisition, goes to Morocco, ends up through various intermarriages sort of running uh, part of it. So, yeah, she ran things for 30 years and was repelling different uh, Portuguese and uh, Spanish fleets. Uh, the Iron Lady of the Arab Muslim World was uh, her title. Uh, she got many titles, actually. The ruler of Tetuan, a barbarous and pirate of Tetuan, uh, took the reins from uh, her husband, who was sort of the good cop to her bad cop. He died, then she remarried and made her new husband come to her, which was kind of unheard of, and just was a boss. For quite some time and then kind of faded into obscurity. According to most accounts, it was, I think her stepson uh, sort of deposed her. And from there, we don't really have any record of her. Um, but yeah, also thinly sourced, very few of the records are in English. I found all of one book that really got into the nitty gritty of it. Um, and it's a pretty old book. And mm-hmm. it's an anthology of like, here's all the interesting people ever to come out of Morocco. Um but I don't think anybody doubts that she existed, but what her actual name was, what she looked like, all the details of that. I think even her, her birth and, and death years are kind of unknown. I'm glad we've gotten to talk about <laughs> some of these less sourceable women. Yeah. 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 It's uh, one of those things that we've talked about it like when we do our Six Impossible episodes, episodes, mm-hmm. uh, that there are some that are just so compelling, but. There's not enough for us it's to like, fill out a, a 30 to 40 like minute podcast. Hoarding little bits of scrap paper yeah. to try to make a whole episode out of it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I did a, an entry on a, a woman uh, named Turgatau who has all of one paragraph written about her anywhere. In uh, Polyanus, I think was the, the name of the uh, Polyanus, the uh, historian. And I managed to sort of fill it out from inferences of like, okay, well, this is what the audience at that time would have known. Like if she's coming from this region, she would have also been a a Scythian queen, much like Tamiris and like fill out all of that. This is probably what she looked like. I can give her tattoos that would be of that ilk and like flesh it out to a decent enough story. But like the source on that is one paragraph. Like there was not much there. (laughs) So there's a lot of questions when you go through history, especially as you go back farther. So we're going to talk a little bit more about your process and that kind of stuff after another brief word from a sponsor. With the holidays almost here, you do not have time to go to the post office. I know I don't. There is traffic. There is parking with my case. There is walking to the post office. And then once you're there, it's packed with other people mailing holiday gifts and packages. So you can use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. And everything that you would do at the post office, you can instead do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant that you need it, and then just hand it off to the person who delivers your mail to you. It is so easy and convenient. 
Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. It is a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So I also wanted to make sure that we talk to you about your process of working on uh, this whole thing. How do you decide which of these amazing women to write about and draw? Uh, it's kind of ad hoc. Uh, part of it is what sources do I have available? Um, there's many that I've just sort of had to give up or uh, put a pause button on because I can't find out more about them, at least yet. Um, and I'll, I've got various readers has been enormously helpful in, in helping source, uh, stuff, but it takes a while. Most of what I look for are, uh, person has to have, uh, personality, agency, and conflict. Uh, if you don't have any conflict, it's boring. If they don't have any personality, you know, it's also, if you don't, if you don't have any conflict, it's a resume. They sort of skate to the end, right? It's just, they can do whatever they want. If they don't have any personality, it's boring. If they don't have any agency, it's a tragedy. Uh, and I don't want to cover any of those. So I want someone who like doesn't have to win, doesn't even have to be a good person, but puts up a good fight and has an interesting story to it. Like I, I come at it from sort of a movie making background. Uh, so that's sort of what I look for in terms of doesn't even have to have much of an arc, but like this happened. This is interesting um, and interests me. And uh, like those aren't steadfast rules. I've certainly covered people that you know don't quite hit that, but that's sort of the guidelines I look for. And then I just try and go for as diverse as humanly possible. Like I, putting together the table of contents for this book, I had this massive spreadsheet that was tracking different eras, sort of different personality types, uh, rating, whether it's PG, PG-13 or R, uh, and then different uh, representations like LGBT and, uh, you know, different ethnicities and different religions, disabilities. Like I wanted to have a very wide range of people. Uh, beyond that, I've got a map interface on the website, a Google Maps of like with different pins uh, for all the different entries. And I sort of u- use that as a to-do list. Like wherever there's not a pin, I'll try and look up as like, oh, I don't have anything for Chile. I'll go find a Chilean heroine. That's perfect. You kind of uh, segue delightfully into our next question, which is that uh, – you do have a lot of diversity and you talk about women often that are from minority or oppressed cultures. But at the end of the day, you are a white guy. It's true. I'm a <laughs> straight white dude from Kentucky. So, <laughs> so how do you sort of approach things in a way like what is what's your sort of um, kind of personal ethics going into that in how you write about them? Everybody's the hero of their own story. So I'm not going to write something just to slag someone off. Um, and I'm trying to, to herald and celebrate different cultures and different types of stories. There's so many different things that just are far more interesting to me than a bunch of frozen sequels. Um, like especially have, like I've got a degree in film criticism and I worked in the animation industry for a number of years. I, I know movies backwards, forwards, upside down and I get really bored seeing the same things over and over and over again, especially knowing that they could have been more interesting and more different and get boiled down to something that feels very similar. So I try and get stuff that is uh, more farther afield. In terms of how I go about representing it, um, I try and find sources written by people that are close to the subject matter. Um, obviously, like, I'm not 
the ideal candidate to be writing about a lot of this stuff. And the Internet is all, all too happy to let me know that. Um, but I, I do my best and I, I admit fallibility where, you know, I can. And like I, I issue corrections. I have a, a whole, uh, a certificate that I give out that says so and so is smarter than me in perpetuity uh, <laughs> for a good correction. Cause it's better that it be correct than my ego be intact. Um, beyond that, I, I try and when it's an in, when it's a culture uh, that takes its storytelling as a sacred art and, and has had it repeated verbatim through the years for centuries and on and on and on. And I, it would be remiss of me to in any way alter that. Uh, I do everything I can to contact that, that tribe or that people and sort of get sign off on that. I've talked to, uh, Mescalero Apache about, uh, a story I did on, uh, Lozen, one of, uh, the, the, uh, Lozen and, and Goyen, two of the, uh, Apache women. I talked to, uh, the Wardaman tribe of, uh, Northern, uh, Australia about a uh, legend they have about a tree golem thing that was defeated by sticky bread. Um, <laughs> it was a pretty fun story. Um, is that in the book? It sounds delightful. It's not in the okay. book, but it is on the web for free. Okay, so okay. look up the entry on Wungala or look on the map and look from the pin on Northern Australia. Um, Holly's I, making the best. <laughs> it's pretty great. Uh, I love when baked goods save the day. It is absolutely <laughs> what happens in that story. Uh, I talked to uh, – uh, Palawan people, the native Tasmanians regarding, uh, depictions of one of their number because there's cultural taboos about, um, depictions of the dead for, uh, Palawan people. So there's a lot of stuff that I'll stumble over, but I try to be very transparent about it and like, I'm trying to do my best. This isn't coming from a place of like me personally profiting or anything. I just want these stories to get out there if that's appropriate. Great. Uh, how long does it take you to do one of these, you know, image story combos? I'm imagining based on our show that there's a wide range. There is a wide range. Um, the fairy tale ones tend to go a lot quicker because there's not as much historical checking, but there is a lot of trying to situate, okay, when did this fairy tale arise? What, uh, um, cultural reference would it be making like you know when say disney does beauty and the beast okay they clearly set that in a very specific time period in france why uh so it's the same sort of uh, hunt for visual reference uh for any sort of fairy tale idea um and those so for the book it's sort of the one big poster image and those can take anywhere between, you know, average is 8 to 12. Uh, there's one in here that features every single person in the entire book, and that took uh, 120 hours to do. Um, it is a ludicrous amount of time to do that one. But most of them are, are 8 to 12 hours per, per illustration. Recently, I started doing more of a comic-style format, where as opposed to just one image and here's a, you know, a wall of text, it's – Here's one poster and here it's sort of the cover to a comic that's uh, got text interspersed with it. That's sort of like an infographic meets comic, an info comic. I don't know what I'd call it. But um, those take a lot longer. <laughs> uh, and that is easily 50 hours of work per, um, which is really – I mean the fact that I'm able to put out 20, 30-page comic every two weeks by myself, I think it's 
pretty good, <laughs> especially because I'm I'm also doing a ton of research. Like I'll read a book or two per entry and like I read pretty quick, but it'll still take me like two, three days to get through that, then do all the visual reference. Meanwhile, I'm trying to keep up with the website and people are like, why haven't you posted? Are you coming back? And I'm like, I'm working so hard. Please let me sleep. <laughs> Sleep is for babies, Jason. Yeah, that's what I understand. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really touched on your art very much in all of this. Huh. And I know you said that you are uh, not necessarily like a classically trained artist. I'm not at all. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your art background and how you kind of came to start working in this animation style and apply it to sure. historical stories? So uh, – I used to work at DreamWorks Animation, but not as what people would think of in terms of an animator. I wasn't drawing and stuff. This is uh, closer to physics programming. It was very, very technical sort of artwork, fire, smoke, water. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of programming. Uh, and so I didn't really know how to draw. I would go to life drawing classes, but they were uninstructed. So just have a model there and you draw and you'd – I'd ask most from people sitting next to me or some of the best artists in the world who are just whipping out amazing stuff. And I'm like, I want to do better. Um, and when I left DreamWorks, I knew that I, I wanted – I had a, a bunch of different um, ideas and stuff I wanted to do. I had a novel fully written, a couple graphic novels ready to go. Uh, the princess thing came out of, weirdly enough, just a lunchtime conversation I had with a bunch of coworkers when Frozen came out. Uh, there was a really terrible clickbait article going around about Frozen is like 12 reasons the Frozen girls are bad role models. And I was like, well, if they're bad role models, we can come up with way worse ones. <laughs> <laughs> what is the worst idea you can come up with? And it's one of these, you know, lunchtime conversations. We just bandy back and forth. And the worst idea we came up with out of that conversation was, uh, Nabokov's Lolita. <laughs> Which is a truly terrible idea. It's such a bad idea that I had to see it exist because I'm a terrible human being. Um, I wouldn't do that entry nowadays, but that's sort of where it started from, weirdly enough. Uh, but I was also tossing out a bunch of people that I'd heard about on Wikipedia just because I'm an info junkie, like Boudicca, the first century English yeah. queen who burnt London to the ground and killed 70,000 Romans, or Jingam Bande, the mother of Angola that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and my coworkers were like, how do you even know all that? And it's like, how do you not? <laughs> Everybody should know this. And so when I left DreamWorks, it was sort of a lark. I put up 12 of them uh, that sort of ran the gamut. Uh, the, the tagline was uh, awesome, awful, or offbeat. It was just people that were morally gray and just weird and – it was all sorts of Wikipedia. It was not, it was not good. Uh, but it went viral nonetheless and people really wanted me to do more. So I kept doing more and I got more thorough with my research, better with the drawing and it's evolved a lot since its early beginnings. That's so cool though. Yeah. I have to wonder if you'll ever do rejected princes. Uh, I do have a little burn folder sitting around of different <laughs> people that I'd love to cover that are like really odd dudes. Yeah. Like Joshua Norton, uh, the emperor of uh, the United States mm -hmm. and yeah. protectorate of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I I really want to go as him for Halloween one year. But <laughs> if you look at pictures of him, he basically just looks like a Confederate war general with yeah. like a crazy feather in his hat. And that doesn't fly. No. <laughs> no. no. Uh, 
Did you have other stuff? No. Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming this to talk to us today. What a treat. Yeah. yeah. Tell everyone where they can find you and your book. So uh, the website is rejectedprincesses.com. Uh, I continue posting stuff on there uh, almost every week or two. I should have another one up uh, today or tomorrow. Uh, and the book is available anywhere. Uh, you can get it Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much any bookstore. Uh, but support your local bookstores. Local bookstores are great. Yes, you are going to be. You're, you're leaving from here to go to one. That's true. It's yeah. true. Eagle Eye Indicator. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Thank you again so much for spending time with us. Yeah. And now everyone knows what to get the princess in their life that yes. maybe isn't exactly the songy dancey flavor. I will say the language tends to be a little... Yeah, you have the stories rated in the book, so parents know what they can and can't share. Yeah, the the rating system, so every single entry has sort of a 1 to 5 PG to PG 13 to R sort of rating Mm -hmm. on it, as well as content warnings. Um, I've stripped down the swearing. There's only like a very, (laughs) very small amount of swearing in the book, and it's usually quotes from other people, like as opposed to me doing it. Um, But... There's some rough content in there. It's yeah. not it's not stuff that I shy away from. And even people that you know about, like I cover the stuff that often gets stripped out from their stories, like, you know, Harriet Tubman as arsonist spymaster sort of stuff um, or what lynching actually entailed. So that's more towards the end of the book. But so people will know what they're getting when they get into it. But it's. There's a lot of really interesting stories in there. Yeah. This is the book that I wish I'd, I'd had when I was 12. I would have killed for this. I, I think most 12-year-olds would have killed for this. So 12-year-olds <laughs> they get one, cool they can with a little swearing. <laughs> uh, do you have listener mail, Tracy? I do. Uh, this is from Mark, and it is about our recent podcast on the Attica prison uprising. He sent it to us after part one, and Mark says, unfortunately, the conditions described in part one of your Attica podcast are still the conditions in California prisons today, though 30 cents a day is a bit high. My brother-in-law had a very good office job at 18 cents a day. There is no hot water except in the kitchen, i.e. if you boiled some. And though the doctors are okay if you can see them, people die of diabetes due to insulin shock on the way to prison because they have no access to insulin for a prolonged period of time. English language mail often takes a month to reach the recipient, partly due to staff shortage and partly because the prison workers doing the work decide to keep mail, especially magazine, for themselves. To get your own cell was a luxury. Most inmates were triple bunked in a dormitory that was once something else, like an indoor basketball court. And because there wasn't enough medical care, doctors, or money for the population, a toothache often meant pulling the tooth rather than fixing a cavity. This is not just one prison. It was multiple, as my family member was moved over the years. Illegal drugs and cell phones were available for sale from the corrections officers, although I'm not sure how they were paid for. In the early 2010s, some of this became more widely known and conditions improved somewhat. Triple bunks no longer had the top bunk filled. Inmates were allowed to use a camera at the prison hospital to communicate with doctors outside. But even as recently as 2013, certain valuable inmates would not be released because their jobs in keeping the prison running was too important. After federal oversight started, my family member was asked to create fake menus as part of the prison's reporting to the federal board to show that nutrition levels had been improved. But he said the food served did not improve. 
Bologna sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and tofu-based food were the typical meals. Occasionally, they received fresh vegetables, often when recalled due to salmonella or arriving in crates marked, quote, not bent for human consumption. The Supreme Court ruled that California could not imprison slave labor like that and ordered these inmates released. It's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but family members who were caught complaining, either through the mail sensor or outside of prison while on parole, often found their family member was given additional demeaning work, tortured, or in the case of parolees, had drugs planted on them to have them convicted yet again. I could go on. But as a family member supporting a highly educated inmate for a white-collar crime, it's disappointing that even after this incident, 40 years later, things hadn't improved, at least in California. What they're missing, though, is activist population. Most of the prisoners were in there for drug dealing or possession, which uh, which continued with the help of officers and no longer have the mental capacity to organize a rebellion, although there were some hunger strikes. If this seems far-fetched, and I don't blame you, I can send you links to websites where family members have been discussing this for years in online forums and how to make our family member inmates more comfortable. I don't want anyone thinking Attica is a chapter that's behind us. It's not just history. It's also very current. But because family members believe the corrections officers unions are out to get them, no one is reporting it to the press. It's sad. Uh, I know that's a very dark note to end on for what was a very chipper podcast. It's balance. Uh, it is balance. <laughs> and Mark sent us this literally within hours of the first part of our Attica uh, podcast going live. We do talk a little bit more in the second part about how a lot of the conditions that we were talking about have not changed. But this uh, is much more detail than we went into. And it's also not at all the only first person account that we have heard since the first part of that podcast was released. So thank you, Mark, for writing. Thank you again, Jason, for coming to hang out with us today. Thank you. This has been lovely. Thank you want to you. just stay? You can work out of our offices going forward. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest and Instagram at History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes for every, every episode that we have ever done. We will have a link to Rejected Princesses in there. You will, yeah. You'll also have uh, an archive of all of our episodes that we have ever done. And you can come to our parent company's website, HowStuffWorks.com, to learn about anything your heart desires. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 